so much. I am so glad to be here. It's been about five or six years since I've been here, so it's great to be back with you again. You know, every church that I know in New England wants to multiply Christ followers, but it seems like that's more challenging today in our postmodern culture than it was, say, 30 or 40 years ago, and it seems more challenging in New England than perhaps in some other places in the country, and we won't get into all the reasons why that might be, but it seems like the challenges are great, and yet the burden is real. We want to multiply Christ followers in New England, and we want to see that happen all over the place. And so our job at the Baptist Convention of New England is to walk alongside churches as they seek to fulfill that mission of multiplying Christ followers across New England. And we work with sort of churches in customized plans to help them figure out exactly how they should do it for their church. Because how you do it here in Southbury, Connecticut is not how we might do it in Boston or Hartford, Connecticut or someplace in Vermont or wherever. Your town is unique. And so our staff works with you to come up with a plan that helps you multiply Christ followers in your town. And we're thankful that you let us do that. And we're really excited to be part of your plan to reach your community for Christ. Well, I want you to know that I only have two speeds. I have fast and faster. And um, I've prepared about an hour and 20 minute sermon. And if you say amen a lot, I can get it done in 35 minutes. So you get to decide how long we'll be here today. It's up to you. My next appointment is not until 4. I have to preach in Marlboro, Massachusetts at 4. That's a 2-hour and 10-minute drive, so I'm good till 2 o'clock. So you guys can decide <laughs> uh, how long, how, whether you want faster, faster. I'm going to give you a familiar passage of Scripture, perhaps in an unfamiliar format. Listen to this unique version of Scripture. Feeling footloose and frisky, a feather-brained fellow forced his father to fork over his farthings. Fast he flew to foreign fields and frittered his family's fortune, feasting fabulously with flat-footed floozies and faithless friends. Fleeced by his fellows in folly, facing famine and feeling faintly fuzzy, he found himself a feed-flinger in a filthy foreign farmyard. Feeling frail and fairly famished, he fain would have filled his frame with foraged food from the fodder fragments. Fooey, he figured. My father's flunkies fare far fancier, the frazzled fugitive fumed feverishly facing the facts. Finally, frustrated from failure and filled with foreboding, he fled from the filthy foreign farmyard. Far away. The father focused on the fretful, familiar form in the field and flew to him and fondly flung his forearms around the fatigued fugitive. Falling at his father's feet, the fugitive floundered forlornly. Father, I have flunked and fruitlessly forfeited family favor. The faithful father, forbidding and forestalling further flinching, frantically flagged the flunkies to fetch forth the finest fatling and fix a feast. <laughs> Meanwhile, the father's firstborn was in a fertile field fixing fences while father and fugitive were feeling festive. The foreman felt fantastic as he flashed the fortunate news of a family of a familiar family face. But the frugal firstborn felt it was fitting to feel favored for his faithfulness and fidelity to family, father, and farm. Frowning and finding fault, the, first, the firstborn fumed to the father. Little brother fritted family funds on floozies and foam, and you fix a feast for the fugitive? Frankly, 
The father felt the frigid firstborn's frugality of forgiveness was formidable and frightful. The far-sighted father figured, such fidelity is fine, but what forbids fervent festivity for the fugitive that is found? Unfurl the flags and finery, let fun and frolic freely flow. Former failure is forgotten. Former failure is forgotten and folly is forsaken and forgiveness it forms the foundation of future fortune. A prodigal son in the key of F, author <laughs> unknown. <laughs> and yes, I might have had to practice that more than once. <laughs> Perhaps the more familiar version of that story is found in Luke chapter 15. And in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11 and 12, we see the story that we learn so much as children in Sunday school. We learn that a man had two sons, and the younger son says to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate that I have coming to me. And so he distributed his assets to him. The story of the prodigal son or the parable of the prodigal son, it is, of course, one of Jesus' most famous parables. Some people actually prefer to call it the, the, the story of the loving father. I think both answers are actually really good. We can call it whichever way we want to, all right? But in the story, there is this, these two sons, and the younger son goes to the dad, and he says, I want my inheritance now. I don't want to wait till you die. I don't want to wait till the will is read. I want my money. I want what's coming to me now. I want mine now. Now, I think that's probably a rude demand in any culture. But in first century Palestine, where this story was told, such a demand was basically the same thing as saying to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead. Could you imagine the family dynamics of one of the kids saying to his dad, I wish you were dead? It reminds me of a story that I heard of a little boy who went to his grandfather and he said to his grandfather, Grandpa, can you make a sound like a frog? And the grandfather said, what? He said to the little boy again, Dad, Grandpa, can you make a sound like a frog? The granddad said, well, why in the world would you want me to do that? Well, Mom says that when you croak, we all get to go to Disney World. <laughs> yeah. A funny story, <laughs> unless you're the granddad. <laughs> realizing that your kids are just waiting for you to die so you can have their money and go have fun with it. What a disrespectful thing for the son to do to the father. Not only was it disrespectful, but it actually went against all the customs of the day. You see, in that particular time period, Jewish custom is that the oldest son would inherit everything. And the younger son, actually what his inheritance would be, typically under their custom, was nothing. Now, I know that today that goes against everything that we would think of. You know, I've recently, some of you know my wife's very ill, and so that's caused us to think through some things. So we've recently updated our will, and of course, we're making sure that, you know, all three kids get everything equally, right? That's the way we think today, all right? But remember that in this time period when this was written, they were an agricultural society, and they definitely survived by the, the, the sort of the land and what the land could produce. And so if we took a big farm 
and we split it in half, now we have two small farms. And then if those parents split it in half, now we have four small farms. And about three or four generations later, you don't have enough to survive. All right, that's the way their, their, their culture was. So even though it's very different, it's not the way we would do it. To them, it made perfect sense to give it all to the older son, and then he would employ all the younger, uh, younger brothers and siblings on the farm forever. So maybe the one brother owned it, but everybody else got permanent employment. You know, in a day like today, permanent employment actually sounds pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, so it sounds pretty good after all. So now sometimes fathers in the day in which witten, sometimes fathers would give the son, the younger son, just some little token sometimes. But if you say, give me what I deserve, what they deserved was actually nothing. All right, that's what the custom was. But not only was it the custom, but there were also laws involved. Uh, according to Jewish law, if you did decide to give your younger sons something, it was forbidden for it to be more than one-third. And the reason is, is they were trying to preserve the family farm because that was the basis of their economy. And so the government had a, a reason to try to preserve the family farm. And so, so by respect, by custom, and by law, the younger son is demanding something that is not his and that he does not deserve. And definitely, if they ever gave something to the younger sons, it never would have happened until the father passed away because back then there was no social security, there was no pension. The father was also eating off of the farm, and if he gave it all away, how would he survive? So by every, by every direction you might want to look at this request, it was wrong for the younger son to request it. Let's take a moment and let's think about a spiritual side of this story. You know, I, sometimes I think that those of us who have been Christians for a while, you know, I became a Christian when I was 10 years old, and I thank God for godly parents and for, for a wonderful church that helped me understand what it meant to become a Christian. And so at 10 years of age, I became a Christian. So now I'm 54, so that means I've been walking with Jesus for 44 years. I don't feel like I'm old enough to have been walking with Jesus for 44 years. It's a long time. You know, it was so kind of you to read off all that list of stuff. I need to figure out where that is and delete it so that people can just, you know, I'm just like a guy trying to serve Jesus, you know. You read off that list of stuff and, wow, that's impressive. That's exciting, right? Could you imagine if I went to God and said, God, I've been serving you for 44 years. I've helped plant 29 churches. I demand that you give me what's coming to me. What's coming to me? What do I deserve? <laughs> what I deserve is to perish in hell forever because of my sin. That is what I have earned. All of my righteousness is as filthy rags. Sometimes, from a spiritual perspective, we become the younger son. We go to God and we say, now we, maybe we not say it in these words, but we say it with this attitude in the back of our mind. Sometimes we're actually brazen enough to say it with words. We say, God, I've been teaching Sunday school for 40 years and I want you to do X for me. Now, God may decide to do X for you, but it's not because you've been teaching Sunday school for 40 years. Well, God, I've been a tither for my whole life, and I've given hundreds of thousands of dollars to the gospel ministry. That's beautiful. Thank God for that. I'd like to have your name. Let's go to lunch, okay? <laughs> but God doesn't owe us a dime. The debt we owe him is greater than we can ever repay. Oh, listen to it, brothers and sisters. Listen to it. The only thing that we deserve, what is our rightful inheritance, is to perish for our sins and pay the penalty for those sins in hell forever. And anything more than that is a gift from a heavenly father just because he loves us. Oh, don't you thank God for his grace? We sang about it this morning. 
thank God for his grace. That grace that he gives us something that we did not deserve. For us to demand anything from God, anything at all, is to be completely disrespectful to God, just like the young son was in this story to his father. Now, this doesn't mean that we cannot humbly go to God and ask him for things. Uh, I've mentioned my wife is quite ill. She's very, very ill. She has pancreatic cancer. If you know anything about pancreatic cancer, uh, only about 5 or 6% of the people who have her particular stage of pancreatic cancer live more than five years. She's not yet been able to have surgery. We keep doing stuff hoping that she's going to have surgery. The statistics say that her chance of living more than five five years is 1%. The statistics are all against us. Thank God we serve. Thank God that we serve a Lord who is not bound by statistics. And trust me, I'm humbly going before God on a regular basis saying, oh God, please, we don't deserve it. We haven't earned it, but give us a grace of healing. I don't know if he's going to give us that grace or not. But whatever he gives us, we will receive as a gift for him, for his grace is sufficient. So we can humbly go to God and ask for anything. But let us never demand something from God. For we have nothing that we can demand from him. Well, according to this particular scripture in verse 12, it says that despite the disrespect shown to him, the father decides to give the son exactly what the son asked for. Now, clearly the son's not mature enough. We know that from the rest of the story. We know the son is going to mess it all up, okay? He's not ready for it. He cannot handle it. He is definitely, this is definitely not what's good for his life. But the father knew that for this particular son, he would not learn it any other way. You know, there are those that, that have a spiritual attuneness with God where they can, like, hear his still, small voice whispering in their ear, and they can alter their behavior and do it right. Thank God for you. <laughs> I'm just not in your number. <laughs> it seems like I need a two by four upside the head to get a message from God. And you know what the crazy thing is? God's not the one swinging the two by four. We swing it ourselves and hit ourselves in the head. And sometimes God says, well, this is crazy, but let me let him hit himself a few more times because he hasn't listened yet. Sometimes God will give us exactly what we ask for, even though what we ask for is not actually what we need. He does this because he knows that for our particular mindset or personality or whatever, we won't learn the lessons of life any other way. Oh, let me tell you, if I could figure out how to stop being hard-headed and become soft-hearted, I would make that transition today. But so far, I haven't figured that out. But maybe some of you have, and you come teach me how to become soft-hearted, all right? Well, what happens after the father gives the son all this money? Does he suddenly become wise and smart and intelligent and he gets a good financial planner and he lives happily ever after? Now, that's a Disney movie. <laughs> what happened in this story, verse 13, not many days later, the younger son, son gathered all that he had and he traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. Once the younger son got what he wanted, it did not take him very long at all to get in trouble. You know, I think that's true in our lives a lot. You know, we go through some struggle, some trial, some difficulty, and man, we're, we're going to church every week, and we're going to Bible study, and, and we're, we're like reading stuff online, and we're posting things on Instagram, you know, memes about Jesus and all this stuff. You know, we got really holy when we're in trouble, right? And then we get our answer from God, and it's like, okay, see y'all in six months when the next crisis comes. We oftentimes think of God as some kind of cosmic piggy bank or, or cosmic ATM machine that we come and we make a, a withdrawal whenever we need something, and the rest of the time we kind of just sort of, sort of ignore him. That happens sometimes. 
And in between the times of desperation when we're seeking out for him, we wander off to a distant country. And we only come back when we need something from God again. What kind of faith is that? Now, I suppose that is better than no faith at all. You know, I was talking to a guy one time. We call him a, a, a creaster. You know what a creaster is? It's a Christian who only goes on church to church on Christmas and Easter, all right? <laughs> so I was talking to this creaster the other day, and I told him Easter was coming up, and so the church that I'm a member of, we're doing this big uh, sanctuary renovation. We've been meeting in our basement for like weeks, and we can't, we're Easter Sunday morning, we'll be back in the sanctuary. We're excited. I said, you got to come, because, you know, it's Easter. It's like your annual visit. You know, you got to come. And, and I'm thankful that he's probably going to show up and bring his family. I'm thankful that he has some kind of faith, okay? But the faith that he has to show up twice a year... Imagine what it would be like if he came 52 times a year. What better faith it would be. I suppose a person who only comes to God when we're in trouble, at least they know God will help them in times of trouble, right? That's something. Praise God for that. But imagine if we could learn to walk with God in good times and in bad when everything is going fantastic and when everything is falling apart, when we have money in the bank and when the bank is looking for our money, wouldn't it be great if we had, we were walking with him faithfully all the time? And that's what I hope I can aspire to in my life. It's what I hope you can aspire to in your life. Well, this young son, he got what he wanted and off he went to a distant country. Now, why did he go to a distant country? Why not just stay right at home where you can live for free? Why not just get an apartment right there in the same town? Well, why did he have to go off to a distant country? Because he didn't want the father to see what he was about to engage in. See, he knew when he got that money, he wasn't going to become like an upstanding citizen. Okay, he wasn't winning any kind of like Jesus awards. Okay, he knew when he got that money, he wanted to do whatever he wanted with no rules. And he wanted to do it just whenever and however he wanted. And he mistakenly thought, that if his dad didn't see it, he wouldn't suffer any consequences from his bad behavior. Of course, that's unrealistic thinking. But don't we do that a lot in our relationship with God? You know, we get engaged in something. As Christians, we know better. We know we shouldn't do it. So we sort of start letting our prayer time kind of wane a little bit. We start skipping a few Bible times. Uh, you know, we maybe don't pray every day or we don't read the Bible every day. Maybe we skip church a few times and we think somehow that if we just don't, if we just don't show up, then God won't notice the mess we're making of our life. And the crazy thing is, is, is God is with us in the midst of that. When we turn that computer on and we're looking at stuff we shouldn't be looking at that computer, God is right there with us looking at that same screen. When we fiddle around with stuff at work and change a few numbers to try to make it look better than it is. God is with us in our dishonesty. God is sitting right there with us. When we're unfaithful to our spouse or we're unfaithful to our commitments or to our promises, when we tell lies and deceit, whatever it is that we've done to wander off to a distant country, we think we've left God at church and then we go out there and do whatever we want to and God doesn't notice. But God is with us. He is with us. He is faithful to us even when we are faithless to him. He sees and knows all. We think we're hiding in a distant place, but God is with us, whether we're on speaking terms with him or not. Well, look at verse 14. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Now, this is an interesting combination of events, and, 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 and I want to be real careful, and I want you to listen closely so that you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There are two types of disasters that happen in our life. There are disasters for which we are not responsible for. 
an economic calamity in the country, probably, unless your name is Biden, probably we're good with that not being your fault, right, okay? A war in the Ukraine, unless your name is Putin, probably you're not guilty of that one, okay? There are disasters that happen, okay, that are, that are beyond our control, and we just get swept up them. In this case, there was a famine that struck. That's not the boy's fault. It just happened, right? But there's also disasters of our own making. This boy had spent everything he had in wild living, and so now he's in a personally created disaster. Now, pay attention to this. When the two disasters mix, it is catastrophic. Uh, I mentioned to you that my wife is going through cancer treatments. I thank God that I'm part of a church that loves us. I thank God that I have the Lord walking with me during this journey. I have a friend who is, uh, was unfaithful in his marriage. His marriage has fallen apart. His adult children, because of the situation, don't want to talk to him. He's also going through cancer treatments. I understand that cancer is no one's fault because my wife has it, okay? It's not her fault. I thank God that I have the support that I have as I'm going through it. He's going through it with no church. He's left his church. He's, his family's left him because of his own mistakes. So you take his mistakes and you take the stuff that's not his fault and you put the two together. I don't know how he gets up every, up every day and survives. I just don't. And I keep saying to him, hey, come to church on Easter. Let's pray together. I keep trying, you know. But so far, he's been hard for that. What a challenging, challenging thing. Listen, there is never a good time for disaster. But when disaster happens at the worst time, that might be God's time of trying to get our attention. When a disaster that we're not in charge of merges or confluences with one that we did create ourselves, that might be God saying, you cannot survive without me. Stop doing stupid stuff and trust me. It's what makes disaster so disastrous. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. is that God is with us in the midst of disaster, even when we created them. My friend, there is no question in my mind that he is a believer. He's not living like one right now. But I remember times in which he has served Jesus. I believe his faith is real. He's just right now in a distant country. And I believe that one day, if he'll just listen... God will bring him back from that distant country, and at least part of his disaster can be resolved. Don't we need the Lord in moments of disasters? And if we're in a distant country, the good news is, is God is with us even in our worst disasters, even if we created the disaster. You say, well, Terry, that sounds good, but is that what the Bible says? Actually, that is what the Bible says. Look at verse 15. It's a powerful verse. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. Now, I just want you to get this picture in your mind. All right, this is a boy. He's the younger son. I won't ask for a show of hands of who's the baby in the family. But we all know you were babied, okay? All right, we all know that. Just ask your younger, older siblings and they will tell you, okay? You got away with stuff none of them got away with, right? We know that, okay? Some of you are saying, no, not me. That's the proof that you're in, okay? All right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so here's the younger son. He's rich. All right, he's the baby of the family. Uh, you know, he's had a life of comfort and ease. And suddenly, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say this word, and this is a bad word. He, he, he had to get a job. <laughs> wow, wow. And since there were no openings for rich playboys on Greg's list, <laughs> he got a dirty job feeding pigs. 
Now, I confess that I have never fed pigs, so I've never experienced this personally, but my dad fed pigs, believe it or not. Yes, when my dad was in Bible college, the only job he could get was feeding pigs, and he would come home. I was about seven or eight years old. He would come home, and we knew not to hug him until he'd come back from the shower, okay? He stank, and it was nasty, and it was dirty, and I know enough from him to know that whatever he had to do, I don't want to be involved in it, okay? I don't want to feed pigs, all right? It's a disgusting job for anyone to do, all right? But it's even more revolting to this young man because if you, if you, you may not know this, but pigs to Jews are unclean and dirty animals. So there's this religious spiritual side to it in addition to the physical side. Now, thank God I'm a Gentile and not a Jew because I love bacon. <laughs> thank God I'm not Jewish, okay? But for this guy, he was Jewish, so this made him feel dirty both inside and outside because of the spiritual nature of this. And you say, well, what's that got to do with God watching out over him? Well, think about this, okay? <laughs> think about this for a moment. Here's a rich kid who's probably never got his hands dirty in his life, definitely has never fed pigs because his daddy as a good Jewish farmer would have never had a pig on the farm, okay? So he has no experience. He doesn't know how to work hard. He's lazy. He's a foreigner from somewhere else. Why in the world, in a moment of economic challenge, would some citizen of that country hire him at all? Only because God somehow moved upon that farmer's heart to hire this lazy, rich kid with no experience who barely speaks the language to come work here. God said, do this anyway. Because God was with this kid even in his worst disaster. Praise God that when we are in self-made disasters in a distant country, God is still with us. Now, we may not like it very much, <laughs> but God will be with us. I think we oftentimes think that God has abandoned us when disaster strikes because we lose a job or because we get some kind of a, uh, a diagnosis from a doctor that we don't like or because a, a relationship breaks up or because some other problem happens. We oftentimes think God has abandoned us. Where is God in our moment of, of anxiety and challenge? He is right there helping us. Now, we may not like how he's helping us, but he is helping us. Thank God that sometimes we end up in the pig pen feeding gross, disgusting animals, but we survive. We survive. Look at verse 16. He longed to eat his fill from the care of pods. Now, I'm using a specific version of the Bible that explains what the, the slop was, the care of pods. These care of pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. Now, I don't know how hungry you have to be to think pig slop looks good, but I can assure you, I have never been that hungry, okay? <laughs> I have never been so hungry that pig slop looks good to me. But that's how hungry this boy is. He is hungry, and that's with a job. Imagine, imagine with a job that he's this hungry. Now, what are carapods? Well, they come from the carob tree. Uh, they're eaten only by the very poor of the land and by animals. If ripened and prepared properly, carapods do have some nutritional value but they don't taste good. Now, I'll just, I'm actually from Illinois, but I married a Southern girl, and I lived in the South for a while. That's where I got this Southern accent. I can't get rid of it. All right, so the only equation I can make, the only equation that I can, I've never eaten a carob pod, but I've eaten okra, okay? <laughs> I envision this taste is the same, okay? It has nutritional value, 
but I have yet to taste it in a way that tastes good. And I have people say, oh, you have to have it boiled. Yeah, I had it that way. It's like, like warm snot. No, no, sorry. <laughs> oh, you have to have it fried. Yeah, I've had that. It's like fried snot. Yep, sorry. You know, I've had, oh, we have it in soup. Yep, I've had it in soup. Yeah, I picked the pieces out, okay? You just can't make it taste good. My wife eats it anyway, okay? She's been conditioned, brainwashed as a child, okay? <laughs> but I know better, okay? All right. I'm not eating it, okay? This is probably the way this boy felt about the carob pods. It must have been very traumatic for this young man who grew up never having missed a meal, who grew up in, in a wealthy, uh, you know, affluent situation to watch pigs get fat while he was getting hungrier and hungrier. How traumatic it must have been for him. He was surviving, but he was not thriving. He was surviving. You know why he was surviving? Because the God who he was faithless to was still being faithful to him. God was making sure he had his daily bread, or in this case, his daily carapods. God was making sure he survived because that was God's promise to this boy. Even though this boy was not keeping his promises to God. God does that sometimes in our lives. We get ourselves in a distant country and we're far from him. But because he holds us in his hand and no man can pluck us from his hand. What a truth. Hallelujah. He holds us in his hand, and he will not let us go. There is nothing we can do to make God say, I no longer love you, I'm dropping you, you're no longer one of my kids. Thank God he holds us, but sometimes he squeezes a little tight, so we feel the pressure. This boy was surviving, but he was not thriving. Spiritually, I think sometimes we begin to long for the things of the world. We fall into the pig pen of sin. But this world's junk food, all the carapods of the world, or the spiritual okra, it just will not satisfy us. And it's not healthy for our long-term spiritual growth. It isn't. And there comes though some moment in which we have to ask ourselves, how long are we going to stay in the pig pen? How long are we going to stay in this mess that we have created? Well, look at verse 17. I love verse 17. He says, when he came to his senses. I just love that. He's sitting there feeding these pigs, thinking, mm, that looks good. I wish I had a fork, you know. I was thinking, mm, I wish I had some of this. And he thought to himself, what am I doing? Why am I here? How many of my father's hired hands, the servants that used to be my servants? You know, they have more than enough food. Here I am dying of hunger. He finally came to his senses. Brothers and sisters, as a pastor of a couple of churches, I have wanted to just say to my congregation, not necessarily the whole congregation, but certain people in it, like, come to your senses. Like, everyone else can see the mess you're making of the situation. Everyone else can see the craziness that your illogic you know, decisions are, are putting you into, and you have all these problems that you created yourself. Come to your senses. Now that I'm middle-aged and all of my kids are adults, you know, my, my baby is like 27. I'm not old enough to have a 27-year-old. i got three grandkids. I'm not old enough to have grandkids, but I sure love them. <laughs> if I'd known how fun the grandkids were, I'd have skipped having kids and went right to the grandkids. <laughs> a lot of fun. It's all the fun with none of the responsibility. You know, I, I look at my kids and thank, thank Jesus all three of them are walking with Jesus. But I had one that for a while lived in a distant country. And oh, as a dad, I was thinking, oh... Oh, come on, come to your senses. One day he did. Hallelujah. One day he did. But living in sin is senseless. It doesn't make sense at all. And yet we do it. We do it. Sin will take us farther than we ever wanted to go. No one ever started off 
in a mess. We started off with just a toe in the pig pen. And then we went to the ankle. And then we went to our knees. And somewhere in there, we just walled around in it and somehow convinced ourselves, at least for a period of time, that we were having fun. Everyone else was looking at us going, you stink. <laughs> this is a mess. Sin will take us farther than we wanted to go. It will keep us longer than we ever wanted to stay. I know so many young people that while they're in college, well, I'm going to sow my wild oats, and when I get out of college, then I'm going to get married, settle down, and everything will be great. And now they're in their 30s, and we haven't seen them at church yet again because they're, they've kept longer than they ever intended to stay. Sin will take us farther than we wanted to go. Sin will keep us longer than we wanted to stay. And it will always, 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 always cost us more than we ever intended to pay. Sin is never worth it in the end. Oh, Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Well, this young boy, he finally realized the truth of this situation. And he knew he could not go on living like that. He, I don't know how long he was in the pig pen. A week? A month? Six months? We, we don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But for some period of time, he was living in this awful situation. And at any moment, he could have gone home. At any moment, he could have repented of his sins and went back to his dad and got everything right. But for some period of time, he kept living in the pig pen. That's what sin does to us. Sin often masks the truth for us for some period of time. We feel trapped and like there's no way out of this bad situation. But there is a way out. We know what it is. It's called repentance. Uh, to walk away from our sinful choices and start doing right. There are good ways. We just don't like those ways. We just don't like them. We don't want to have to repent. We want to somehow have our sin and eat it too. Does that make sense? The cake part makes sense, but if you replace the word cake with sin, it doesn't make any sense. And yet that's what we want. We want to have our sin and eat it too. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's senseless. We oftentimes suffer significantly for some period of time in our life because we have believed our own lies. We have believed the stuff we told ourselves that we, 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 we used to teach Sunday school and we know better. And yet here we are doing it. But one day, don't you love that beautiful doctrine, the perseverance of the saints? One day, we will come to our senses, and we will see reality. And in that humbling moment, like this young man, we'll say, what am I doing in this pig pen? Look at verse 18. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. To get back to a right relationship with God, we must first admit that our actions are sinful. Now, we don't like to talk about sin in our world anymore. In our postmodern world, we want to think everyone makes up their own truth and everyone makes up their own ideas and everyone makes up whatever is right for them. That's called chaos. Or that's called craziness. In our, our world right now, we're living that chaos and we're living that craziness. Our actions are not just a mistake or a minor blunder. Our actions are grievous sins before a holy God of the universe. And if we ever want to get on the right track and get out of the pig pen, let's stop justifying stuff we know is not justifiable and let's start saying, God, I have sinned and I am sorry. I have a, several friends, younger friends, who are involved in some really bad stuff. They all grew up in church. And they say, well, I don't want to go to church because they judge me. Now, I know the Bible says judge not lest you be judged. I get that. And, and I think it's interesting that, that they think the church judges them. I said, well, have you been to church since you've been engaged in that particular thing? No. So who at the church judged you? Nobody. You know who judged them? They judged themselves. <laughs> because written on their hearts is the law of God. Romans tells us that. And they know that what they're doing is wrong. If you live a life that is worthy and holy and righteous, 
then I don't worry about being judged, right? This young man was doing what was wrong, and there came a moment when he had to go to his father and say, I have messed up. I have taken this wonderful gift of grace that you gave me, and I have squandered it with wild living, and I've been wallowing around in the pig pen, and I am a mess. He had to admit that to God, but he also needed to admit that to his father. He needed to go to his dad, and he needed to say, I have sinned against heaven, and I have sinned against you. We must openly and completely admit this if we really want the truth to bring healing to our lives. I'm amazed at the number of people who want to say, well, you know, in that circumstance, in that situation, you know, I made the best choice possible. Really? <laughs> I have this friend of mine. <laughs> I got a lot of friends that are pretty messed up. Maybe that tells you about my friends. I don't know. <laughs> I got this friend. He's been divorced five times. <laughs> yeah. um, now, I, I can get once, okay? I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not I'm not endorsing divorce, okay? But, but anybody can make a mistake, right? But five? Like, Wow. So he said, now I'm going to go to church and I'm going to get me a good Christian woman. I said, well, if she's a really good Christian woman, I'm not sure she's going to want you. You know, you know? the reality is, is his sin wasn't just against a grievous God. He's hurt a lot of people in his life, too. And he has not yet really acknowledged any of that. And yet he just wants to find some other person to do it to again. That's not repentance. We have to openly and completely admit that my behavior, that our behavior, it hurts God, and it hurts people. And it's only when we admit that that we begin to find real healing. It's when we stop blaming everyone else and we look in the mirror and say, here's my part of my mess, and here's how I can fix my part. Now, I can't fix other people, can't change other people, but I can change me. I can fix me. So look at verse 20. So he got up. I love that. He got up. He got up out of that pig pen. He's wallowing around in it. He's covered in it. He said, I am done with this. He got up, and he went to his father. What a beautiful verse. He took action that proved his understanding of the truth in his life. He could have just stayed at the big pen and said, oh, poor me. Oh, look at me. My money's gone, and now there's a famine in the land, and there's no food, and the only job I could get, feeding pigs. Oh, poor me. He could have posted about it on Facebook and Instagram. Oh, poor me. You know, pray for, pray for me. Pray for me. Now, all of us would have typed praying for you, right? You know, pray for me as I continue to wallow in the pig pen. A lot of people, that's exactly what a lot of people do, right? This boy got up and he said, I'm done with this. And he went back to his father. We must take action that proves our understanding of the truth in our life. Now, we're not, we don't have to take action to be saved. We've already been saved, all right? We're taking action that proves that we know that as a saved person, this is how I should live. We're not to be do, uh, only hearers of the word. We must be doers of the word. How important that is. Look at the second half of verse 20. I'm almost finished here. The second half of verse 20. So he's headed back. He's headed back to home. And you might think, I don't know what he looks like. I'm just, in my mind, I see a carob pod sticking out of his ear, and I, I smell on him. You know, I, I, In my mind, I don't see, if he had a luxury, like, whirlpool bathtub, he would have already sold it in order to buy some food, okay? At this point in my mind, he looks a mess. But while the sun was still a long way off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. Whew, wow, what a savior. Before the son could even make it all the way home, the father had already seen him. I think we're afraid to confess our sins to God and to confess our sins to others who we might have hurt because we're afraid of rejection. 
You know, when my one son who wandered away for a while in a distant country, when he got right, when the text came that said, Dad, I'm back in church. It was like 10 years was gone. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior. What a Savior. If we take one step toward God, God will take a dozen steps toward us. I love James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. All we have to do is take one step, and God will do the rest. Four things I've tried to say this morning that I hope you've heard. Number one, never demand what we deserve from God. Never, <laughs> because all we deserve is hell, and I don't think any of us want that. It's okay to humbly ask, but don't get demanding. Number two, when we try to run from God, and we all do, some people run faster and farther, but we all run from God sometimes, right? That's part of being human. When we try to run from God, it will always end in disaster, but God will still be there. That's the good news of the gospel, that God will always be there. Number three, when we finally come to our senses, we must repent and then take action that demonstrates repentance. There might be someone here today who, for whatever reason, God has brought you to your senses. Maybe in this moment, maybe in the last week, maybe in the last month. Repent and do the works of repentance and watch what God does. Number four, if we just take one step toward God, he'll bring us the rest of the way home. Most of this morning, I've talked to Christians who have wandered from the faith. You might be here today, and maybe you've never yet become a Christian. You've not yet made that commitment. All oh, just take one step toward God, and he'll do the rest. For Jesus died for us, and he's just simply waiting for us to recognize it so that he can do a work of grace in our lives. Let us embrace him and watch what he will do. Will you bow your heads with me for a moment? There in your seat, would you allow the Holy Spirit to begin to speak to you? In a moment, I'm going to voice sort of a verbal prayer, but you might want to pray quietly there in your seat. Perhaps you find yourself in the pig pen. Maybe you're all the way in. Maybe just your toes are in. But you know there's some pieces in your life in which you're not doing what God wants you to do. Would you say, oh, God, bring me to my senses and help me to take action that proves of my repentance? Maybe you're not yet a Christian. You could call upon him right there in your seat. You could say, oh, God, forgive me of my sins. Help me to follow you for the rest of my life. You would be amazed what God would do. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would move across this room, move across our hearts, that you would call your children who you have never stopped loving no matter what they have done. You, you, you have continued to love them. You have been faithful to them even when they were faithless to you. Oh, God, thank you for that. Remind them again today. They are your kids. Bring them to their senses, and may they walk with you. For those of us who are parents who maybe have a child who's wandering from you, oh God, renew our faith and encourage our hearts and let us pray with fervency that they will return to the faith that they, they hold to, even if right now they're in a distant country. Lord, if there is anyone here who's not yet a believer, I pray that in this moment your Holy Spirit would fall upon them, would convict them of, our sin, of their sin, and they would cry out to God and they experience that beautiful thing we call salvation. Lord, this is not too much for us to ask of you, for you are the God of the universe. And we pray that your power will be displayed in our hearts in this moment. 
We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.